Thank you, God. We magnify your wonderful name. We thank you for the privilege to be in your house. Thank you for the privilege to look into your word. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be with each other, Lord, here in your presence. We ask you, God, to touch every heart, every life, every soul here today. Bless the services, all of them, Lord. And we ask you, Jesus, to touch us each and every one individually. In thy precious and holy name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Turn to your neighbor, shake their hand, greet them in Jesus' name. If you don't have anybody close by, just wave at them. Amen. Praise God. That'll work. God bless you, and you may be seated. <clears throat> I'm going to uh, resume some teaching that we have been doing concerning the, uh, the restoration of the church or the uh, Reformation. I guess the Reformation is the right word, but... Sometimes I think it's more restoration than reformation. Reformation is reform. And this is the chart that we have been following, as you well know. Uh, I think you're somewhat familiar with it. This side of the chart, and we, we elaborated on this for some time, it was the falling away. This was the, let me move it over this way just a little bit. This was the original church, the apostolic church here. And uh, then there began to be added... <clears throat> all kinds of beliefs, doctrines, views, uh, and, and the church began to fall away from the position and place that it was in God until it had lost all power and it came into the dark ages. It eventually evolved in what we know today as the Catholic Church, and then the Catholic Church itself split, and it became the Orthodox Church in the eastern part of, the, of Europe and the Roman Catholic Church in the western part of Europe. And uh, then it came into the dark ages and so forth, uh, many things was added, the worship of Mary and uh, the infant baptism instead of, uh, instead of immersion, uh, infant baptism, and then finally baptism by sprinkling and so forth. Uh, the many, I won't go into detail on this, but we talked about all of that in detail. And then until it got to the place where the, the church was really in bad shape, the word of God was no longer in the hands of the people. Uh, they had to always go to... Uh, to the priests to say, what does God want us to do? You know, how do we, should we live? So forth. And they'd say, we'll tell you what God wants us to do. And so it was through their mouths that the people would follow the Lord. And so forth. They had no Bible. The Bible was left in Latin in Eastern Europe, Western Europe. In Eastern Europe, it was in Greek. And uh, the Greeks said that the only way the Word of God could be infallible was to be in the original Greek language. Uh, the, I'm talking about the Greek Orthodox. That was also the Russian Orthodox. And all of the uh, Eastern Europe, the, the Orthodox was added to the name of their country, whatever country they were in. And then in uh, Western Europe, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, it was in the Latin. So the Latin was it. And so when they did Mass, they did it in Latin. Nobody knew what the language was. So the Word of God was like it was uh, hidden. It was just taken away from them and so forth, until Martin Luther, who himself was a priest and understood Latin, began to read the word himself personally. And he said, man, we're way off course. And we, so he got, the, uh, got to speaking, talking about it, preaching about it, made a visit to Rome, and was shocked at the, at the uh, abominations that were going on in that city. And then the, the, uh, the sin and everything else that he saw, he was, he was shocked on that. He went back to his Germany, where he was from, and uh, he began to read more in the Word of God and decided it was time for the church to be reformed, 
That's where the reform, word Reformation then comes from. So Martin Luther in, in 1517, uh, October 31st, mailed, nailed those 95 theses, which was his objections at that time to the church, which was the Roman Catholic Church. He nailed his uh, thesis there on the door of the church in Wittenberg and uh, stated that we, this is what we need to reform. Well, immediately he drew a lot of fire. People, in the, you know, they got mad at him. Some of them began to hound him, and uh, others began to believe what he was saying. And so he began to teach, talk, uh, instruct. He, he was also a university teacher and uh, began to teach the Word of God until finally he was no longer teaching uh, philosophies and, uh, and, and other things that he taught. He began to just teach the Word of God by itself only. And his whole concept was that we're justified by faith, not by works. And so he actually began to break from the Catholic Church. Along about that time, shortly after that, was another Reformation leader. And uh, John Calvin, he began to break away from the Catholic Church as well. And uh, <clears throat> he, formed, he eventually established what we know as the Presbyterian Church. There were others that began to break away. There was, uh, you know, the different groups of people that began to form. There was the Anabaptist, what was called the Anabaptist, and uh, they began to uh, form and they began to have their services. And so uh, Europe began to change. And so some European countries stayed Catholicism, with Catholicism. Some broke away and became Protestant, as it was called, different ones under different, uh, different Protestant groups. The Dutch Reform is, uh, is one that was, I think was Lutheran, and they became the Dutch Reformed Church. And so forth. And so this came out through Europe. And then finally, when they, be, they began to come to America, people began to come to America, settle America, all of that was brought with them and so forth. And so America went through a series of revivals. This shows the Reformation side of it here. Luther, the Presbyterians, the Congregationalist Church by Robert Brown, the Baptists here by uh, John Smith, spelled S-M-Y-T-H-E, uh, who was in Holland and America and so forth. The Methodist group started in England, but John Wesley and George Whitfield and Charles Wesley, that group that began to establish the Methodist Church, the Christian Church, uh, who believed that baptism was for the remission of sins. Each one would add a truth, because in what they were in, they would say, you know what, we have not gone far enough. The Bible teaches this, because the Word of God began to be put in the hands of the people. Luther put it in the hands of the German people. Uh, Wycliffe put it in the hands of the English people, and then uh, later on, uh, the uh, the Bible was translated for all the English people, and I think it was uh, what I can't remember the dates now, 16 something, but anyhow, it was put in there so that we have the King James version. King James, at that time, King of England, uh, appointed 70 of his best scholars, Hebrew and Greek scholars, and said, translate the Bible into the English language for the English-speaking people. To this day, I might just add this, the King James Version uh, does not have any kind of a copyright to it. Uh, some of the translations that you may buy in stores, they've got a copyright on it, so that the people who translated it, they get a certain you know, percentage of money from every sale of those Bibles. King James Version was never done that way. It was intended not to be. Uh, there may be some, some helps that's put in the Bible, like a Scofield Bible or Thompson Chain, where they put added notes and 
and things that can help you to study the Bible. Now, those can have, uh, they can be copywritten in that fashion. But outside of the Word itself, uh, anybody can open up a printing shop and print the Bible. And I think that's a wonderful thing. So the King James Bible has been handed to us. Then there has been the, uh, the, more, the newer King James Version where it was sort of old words were sort of placed with some more familiar words to us and so forth so that we could still uh, uh, understand it not be complicated by it and so forth. So as time went along, all of these things began to transpire and to, uh, to work. I'm going to start today and talk to you about the Trinity Pentecostal movement or the Pentecostal movement in general. This is one of the most amazing things that ever happened uh, in the Reformation period of time as the church began to reestablish itself because as they began to read the Word of God, they found out we are not where we should be. So I want everybody to get your feet in, buckle your seat belts, hang on. Uh, I'm going to talk to you today about some things that transpired back there around 1900. And uh, about the end of that period of time, there were things happening about the latter part of the 1800s. I call it that as the 19th century. Uh, there began to be things to happen in America that began to bring about revival. People began to say, you know, they began to bleed, find out that God heals, for one thing. And so they began to preach healing to some degree. Uh, <clears throat> they began to realize that holiness, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And so they began to preach holiness. The Methodists began that, but eventually they, they sort of moved away from it. But there are other groups that were holiness groups that began to carry that message forward. And they, uh, they believed that women should dress right, uh, you know, and they, everybody live right. Men should act right, talk right, do right. Everything was trying to stay according to the Word of God. And they held to that scripture where it said, that God is uh, where God said, "Be ye holy, for I am. Be ye holy, for I am holy." And so, holiness movement began to move, and as it did, things began to happen, and people began to experience the presence of the Lord. Uh, I don't know whether you know this or not, but the Quakers—they uh, tell me—I don't know this from experience—but they say Quakers' meeting is some of the driest, deadest, boring church services you will ever attend. You go there, you sit, and then you leave. What happened with the Quakers was that they, the word quake means they would shake. And they would go to the house of God, and they would worship the Lord, and they begin to shake under the presence of the Lord, they literally. And they would shake, and they were called Quakers. And so people would say, those people are Quakers. They're shakers, you know. They're the Quakers and everything. And after a while, the Quaker says, you know what? We don't do anything until God moves. So when we go to church, we don't pray, we don't worship, we don't glorify God, we don't, go, we don't conduct a service. We'll just wait on the Lord and let God move. And so then the Lord would move, and then they'd shake and quake and so forth. After a while, all the quaking stopped because nobody worshiped the Lord. And so it became very dead and dry. And that's what we know today as is as quiet as a Quaker's meeting. How many of you have heard that term? Nobody. I guess I'm the only one. All right. So anyhow, it's just, it's, as they say, it's as dead as a Quakers meeting. Well, anyhow, the Quakers were a part of that group and so forth. And so the, the Spirit of God began to move in a fashion and so forth. Uh, I want to come to, to the place where there was a man by the name of Charles Parham. 
1900, in October of 1900, he went to Topeka, Kansas. Parham was a Methodist preacher, and he wanted to establish a Bible school. He bought a, a, a building, an old, a big house that was right out of town that was called Stone's Folly. A fellow by the name of Stone built the house for his family. His family all grew up and all moved away, and he died, and the house was left there. Nobody, I guess, wanted it. It was just too big, just a big, beautiful house that was sitting out there at the edge of nothing, you know. And uh, so Parham went there, and he bought the house or made arrangements to buy it, and uh, he opened up a Bible school there. And he had these students come in. This was in October of 1900. And he began to teach them the Word of God and teach them the Bible and so forth. Along about uh, somewhere around September of, 19, uh, of that year, 1900, around, seven, around September, he had to go away and uh, do some evangelistic work. He would go preach revivals and things and raise some money for his Bible school. He told his class, he said, I have been reading some scriptures in the Bible that I want to know, is it for us today? Because most of Christianity was saying it was not for us today. I'm going to read the scriptures in a moment. It's not for us today. It was for the apostolic early church period of time only. And this was what was commonly believed and thought among so much of Christianity at that time. And so I'm going to read the verse of Scripture to you. I want you to go to the book of Acts with me. And he said, I want you to pray and ask God, is this for us today? This was what he had asked his, the people to do. Uh, I want you to look with me in Acts and chapter uh, 2. 1 through 4, and I would say probably 90% of you know exactly what I'm going to read here, so follow with me very closely. It says here, and this is uh, from Acts chapter 2 with verses 1 uh, through 4 here, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. This is speaking of the 12 apostles, or the 11 at that time. And... Uh, <clears throat> And the others who were Christians, that was 120 altogether, including Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it says that they were at one mind, one accord, one place. Suddenly there came a sound, verse 2, from heaven, as of a, mighty, of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay? And then uh, this was what began to happen. And then he went on to say that there was all of these people that were there, uh, and these Jews, and they heard them speaking in tongues. And he went on to say that they heard them speaking in the language that these people understood. They all spoke Aramaic, which was the New Testament Hebrew. They all spoke Greek which was the, the international language that everybody in the then-known world pretty well spoke. But they also spoke their native language back in the country that they were scattered into because the Jews were still scattered all over the place. And so they were there for this feast day of Pentecost. Pentecost is, means 50, and it's 50 days after the Passover. So this day of Pentecost here in the Bible is 50 days after the Passover in which Jesus was crucified and then rose the third day. And so 50 days later, now it was time for the Feast of Pentecost, and all these Jews had gathered there in order to just have the feast day as usual, 
And it was on that day that the Lord sent the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and all these people were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak in other tongues. And as they did, these Jews that gathered around says, we are hearing them speaking in our language. The word tongues means language. The, the, the uh, Greek word for it is glossolalia. It means speaking in tongues or speaking in another language. And it's glossolalia. So they were speaking in glossolalia, which was another language that they did not understand, but people who knew the language understood it. And so it goes on to say here in verse 9, <clears throat> they said that, uh, verse 8, I'll read that, verse 8. This is 2.8. And now here we ever been in our own tongue wherein we were born. This is the countries that they were born in, but they were all Jews. It says, they went on to say, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers of Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, verse 10 here, and in Egypt and parts of Libya and Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, verse 11, Cretes, Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Actually, there are 16 countries that are mentioned here, and they said, what does all of this mean? Verse 12, and they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocking, others mocking, there's always the mockers around, saying these men are full of new wine. They're all drunk, which means that they were acting a little bit strange as well. Now, the Spirit of God, when it moves on you, sometimes it does make you act a little, you know, a little odd, a little strange, you know. You may worship, you may jump up and down, clap your hand, and somebody else may say, I don't know what they're all excited about, but there's something, you know, going on. Praise God. But the Spirit of God just moves on this old carnal flesh, and it causes us to respond, praise the Lord, in somewhat maybe an unusual way than what we normally act. And then it goes on to say in verse 14, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, And from here he preached a message unto these people, and begin to preach unto them. <clears throat> and this is one of the things that he said in verse 16. And he says, this is that, they, were, they wanted to know what was this. He says, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, and he quotes here from, uh, from Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 38. He quotes this from Joel, verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith the Lord, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaids I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. The word prophesy here does not mean to foretell the future. It means to declare God's word. The word prophesy or prophecy has, a double, has two meanings to it. And so it means that preaching or talking, it means inspired declaring of the Word of God. Preachers are prophesying when they preach. In other words, it's inspired word. So forth. I won't go any further with that, but you wanted to say that this is what Charles Parham told his students. I want you to read this, and I want you to begin to pray and ask God this question, is this for us today? Do you understand here how that while they had many doctrinal beliefs, all of these denominations had begun to establish they had not yet discovered the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Even though it had happened along the way here and there all through the 2,000-year period of time ever since the beginning of the church, it had been happening. But they, they never took it too seriously. It was like a, a phenomenon of some type. 
missionaries would come back from the field and say, you know what, us preaching to some people, and they begin to jabber in language and so forth, and I didn't know what they were saying. Or another one would come back and said, I was preaching to some people in China and everything, and, and there's a lady that began to speak in English, and I knew everything she was saying. She was worshiping the Lord in English. She didn't know English, you know, and they began to talk about that. <clears throat> and so things like this would happen from time to time so that they knew people did receive the Holy Ghost. But it was never in a dramatic or dynamic way that up until this particular time. So Parham went away, came back, and uh, he said to the people, they said, yeah, we have been, he got, it, got them all together. We have been studying and we've been preaching, uh, we've been reading all of this, and we do believe that it is for us today. They were coming upon the end of the year, and they observed what we also observed, what was called the watch service. That's the last uh, night in the year in which they all get together and they have service. And uh, we usually, this church, we come together, we have a worship service, and then we have a time of feasting. We come back into church and we pray the old year out and the new year in. How many of you are aware of that? You've been here when we do that. It's a great time. We usually have, uh, I don't know, maybe three or 400 people uh, for, that, uh, for that service. And uh, this is what they have done for, actually, for decades in the, in the Christian movement. And so this is what they were doing there. They all got together and said, we're going to pray the old year out, the new year in. And while they were praying in that, in that meeting, in that, and they turned into, the year went from the old year of 1900 to 1901, and everything, there was a young lady that came to Parham and said, would you lay hands on me and pray for me? Because I feel like God wants to give me this baptism. And he laid hands on, prayed for her, and she began to speak in other tongues and began to glorify God and magnify God. And they said, oh, my Lord, this is the same thing that the apostles had. This is that that the Bible talked about. And so they all began to seek it. And throughout January, this group began until just about every one of them, if not all of them, had received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, including Parham, his wife, and, and these young people and everything. And they began to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Then there were some healings involved. There were people that began to come there a little bit and see what's going on. And then Charles Parham went out and began to preach in other places and began to tell them, listen, the Holy Ghost is for us. Now listen to me closely. The Holy Ghost is for us. We can receive it. We can get it just like they got it in the Bible, in the Old Testament. I mean, in the, in the New Testament, early church. We can get it just like they did in the Bible. And people wouldn't believe them. They said, no, no, that's not right. That's not true. And he went from place to place to place. And for about a year or two years, he got nowhere. I mean, he would preach, and these young people would go with him, and they would worship, and they'd speak in tongues, and people would come around and watch them. But nobody believed him. And finally, he went to one place and was preaching what he called a crusade and had a few people and so forth. And a woman who was in another city that was blind in one eye and almost blind in the other eye and had all kind of bowel, bowel, bowel troubles in her system and was all messed up inside. She heard about it and she made a journey from one town, this is in Kansas, to another town. And she went over to where they were and she says, would you pray for me that God would touch me and heal me? And he laid hands on her and prayed for her. She received the baptism of the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues and was instantly healed from top to bottom to head to toe. And her eyes were made whole. She was totally healed all the way through. 
And when that happened, everybody began to come around then. And they began to bring the sick and afflicted. And, begin to, and then they started having revival like you would not believe. It took two years of just going on, doing what they knew they had to do. And they kept on preaching. And people began to get saved. And the word of God began to spread. And it, it spread down into Houston, Texas. It got down into Houston. And when it got down into Houston, and this is all happening alike, like about 1903 and 4 and 5. Uh, they began to have revival in Houston, and people began to receive the Holy Ghost. And they started having prayer meetings, and people getting the Holy Ghost, being baptized, and people coming from all over the country there in Houston to hear the message of salvation. Amen. And uh, they had one situation where a bunch of people went to a prayer meeting. They prayed and prayed, and a bunch of them got the Holy Ghost, but a bunch did not get the Holy Ghost. And they knew, they, they knew when they had the Holy Ghost, they spoke in other tongues. That was the evidence of it, right? And they knew that. And so these people who did not get the Holy Ghost, they had to go back to their town. They had to go to another town where they were from. And they got on a train. And so when they got on the train and they started back to the other town, everything, uh, Parham happened to have come down and got on that train. And he says, hey, we can get the Holy Ghost on the train. And so he began to pray for them. And on that train, I think there was something like uh, five got the Holy Ghost on that first lap. And then the next lap, some of them got off and some got on. And the next lap, there was another five or something. They started praying with these people on the train. Everybody else that was on the train just got in the other cars and said, just leave it with them. I don't know what's going on or who these people are. And everything. And they prayed. Before that train trip ended and everybody had made their trip back to their homes, there was something like 25 people had received the baptism of the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues. There was one man there by the name of Howard Goss. Howard Goss would later become... The, uh, the vice president of the Assemblies of God. He also would later become the president of the United Pentecostal Church. I mean, the general superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church, the Apostolic. Uh, Howard Goss was, was there, and uh, he sought the Holy Ghost, sought for the Holy Ghost, and uh, he was one of those who had gotten it on the train. But the only problem with him is that he couldn't talk in English. He spoke in tongues, spoke in tongues, spoke in tongues for seven days. He talked in tongues, and he could not. Every time he'd open his mouth to talk in English, tongues would come out. And so he went to one service and prayed, and, and they asked him to testify and, and how God had filled with the Holy Ghost, and he started talking in tongues. And they said, why don't you just come up here and, and preach to us? And he got up in the pulpit and preached to them in tongues, you know. Just, it was just like God was pouring out his spirit mightily. And in a, a period of time in Texas there, 25,000 people received the baptism of the Holy Ghost and was speaking in other tongues, and it began to spread like wildfire all over the South and all over that part of, of the United States. In that group, that was a black man by the name of Seymour. Uh, William Seymour was a real humble guy. He was a, just a real, they said, everybody that speaks of him speaks of him so highly. And Seymour was a young, he was a holiness preacher. And he had come there to receive the Holy Ghost as well. And he had gotten the Holy Ghost. And a lady had come from Los Angeles uh, to receive the Holy Ghost. And she came there and she met him. She received the Holy Ghost. And she met him and liked him. And she went back to her, her church, uh, some holiness church in uh, Los Angeles. And she told the people, she says, we need a pastor and she says, this brother is, a, is really a good man. I'd like for us to consider it. So 
They sent him the money, the fare, and everything. He went to Los Angeles. This is uh, William Seymour did. He went to Los. <laughs> he, went, he went to Los Angeles. And he went to this hole in this church. Praise the Lord. Amen. <clears throat> and uh, Sunday morning was his first day, and he took his text. Took his text from Acts chapter two and verse one. The same scriptures I read to you here, verse four. And he preached on the outpouring of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking other tongues. And everybody sat quiet as a mouse. They dismissed service Sunday morning. Sunday night he went back and the door was locked. <laughs> and they had a note there telling him that he had been fired as the pastor of the church. Just preaching one message. They said they, 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 they weren't used to that kind of preaching. They didn't know what to do with it. And so they, the, 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 the irony of it is that the woman who kicked up her heels the most about it later became one of his converts and became one of his uh, people who really followed his teachings very closely. So another guy named Lee, he said, uh, told his wife, he said, you know, I don't agree with this guy Seymour, but he says, uh, he said, I, we just can't, you know, we just can't leave him out in the cold. He has, he has no money, he has no place to go. I said, we, we paid for him to come here. He was a member of that church. He said, I'm going to let him stay at our house. So Seymour says, I appreciate it. If you just let me, and the guy only had one eye, and incidentally, William Seymour only was one-eyed. Uh, and and they, he said, if I could just stay in one of the room, and he said, I want to pray. And he prayed and fasted for two days. And, uh, and, the, and the presence of the Lord came on him, and they began to feel the presence of the Lord when this man would pray or when they would get around him. And finally, another church, another man said to him, would you come over and preach for us? And he preached there, and the Holy Ghost began to fall, and people began to get saved. And everything, and the, the people began to gather in and gather around. This was in Los Angeles. And, uh, and they said, we got to have a building. So they bought an old Methodist church that, was, that had been just abandoned. And it was in an old section of town where there's a lumber yard close by, and there's a tombstone manufacturing place and, you know, close next door or something. And they said, you know what, we can pray and we can worship God here all we want to. Nobody's going to call the police on us because all this old factory noise and everything, nobody cares, you know. And so they had an upper room and at a bottom, it was called, it was Azusa Street. It was called Azusa Street. And uh, they began that meeting there. And folks, for three years, they went day and night without ever taking a break. For three years. From 1906 to 1909, Azusa Street Missions went on. And people came there, and they would receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And they said about this Seymour, they said he would sit on a chair. And for some reason, he had a shoebox, two shoeboxes that sat in front of him on a little stool. And he'd put his head in the top seat. And, and while anybody's preaching or the service going on, he's in there praying in that little shoebox. And they said... It was odd, it was strange, but the presence and the power of God was there mightily. And God began to pour out His Spirit, and people began to get the Holy Ghost, and people began to be, began to be uh, healed. I mean, people came there with all kinds of afflictions, and it began to spread. Pastors began to come from all over America there. Men, pastors, evangelists, uh, Christians. Uh, they begin to come there and say, what's this thing that's happening in Azusa Street, Los Angeles? And so they would go there, and they would go into one of these services. And you could always, you could just go there at any time. There'd be a service. They had a one place upstairs. They had a place there they called the mourners. Bench. And anybody that needed healing, they had people who specialized in praying for them to be healed. 
And so they would go there, and they had what they call a morning. You know what they had for you know what they had for pews? They had uh, they had orange crates, and then they had a board they just laid across it, and that's what you sat on. That was the pew, and they sat on them orange crates. And uh, no offerings was ever received. No offerings ever received. It was just you know, and the building they just uh, they they never asked for money. They said Seymour would walk around sometime and pray for people, and people would stick a five dollar bill or ten dollar bill in his pocket. And everything, he'd have money sticking in his pocket. Sometimes wouldn't even know they were there, you know. And that's what he pretty well paid the, you know, the rent or whatever it was. But they never, never was without the need to take care of whatever it was. And God began to pour out His Spirit. Missionaries would come back from around the world, someplace, different denominations: Baptists, Methodists, the Holiness Movement, uh, different groups, uh, Nazarenes, whoever they were. And they'd say, you've got to go to Azusa Street, and you've got to see what's happening over there. God's pouring out His Spirit like He did in the book of Acts. And this is where it all started, folks. It started there with people saying, we're going to pray and seek the face of God, and we're going to call on the Lord, and God's going to pour out His Spirit. And people began to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and they began to pray, and God would do it. And when they would go into that place where they would pray for healing, they'd pray for Hours and hours, and even uh, that didn't happen to do the next day and everything until they got their healing. You know, it was like you, you're supposed to get your healing, you know. And uh, I'm only saying here that these were just everyday, common, ordinary people. They came from all over the world. There was one guy that named Urit, uh, the, the name Urit, uh, that Urit, uh, Frank Urit, who came from Australia. He came from Australia and he'd gone to Canada and he was a uh, uh, he wanted to try to, you know, get into the ministry in Australia, and he called Australia, he called Canada, rather his uh, his coal, his coal uh, sister nation. That's what they referred to it in Australia. And so from there in Canada, they came down into America. And when he got in Portland, he received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and he heard all about this Azusa uh, this uh, this uh, Azusa Street meeting, and he went to Azusa Street, and he began to work there and. And pretty soon he was out. What happened when people would come there and get the baptism of the Holy Ghost? Then they'd go out and start missions. They'd go someplace in a town or even across town in Los Angeles. Or they'd go to Seattle or Portland. Or, and they would start a, a, a mission work there. And they'd go to a town and they'd start preaching. And they'd say, you know, God's pouring out the Holy Ghost and everything. And uh, it just kept going and mushrooming. And God kept doing a great work. And I'm just telling you here today that God has not changed, and what they tapped into is what God had always been doing. They just had not gotten into it with faith to believe the Lord. This was the beginning of the Pentecostal movement in America. Eventually, there was a guy by the name of Durham, William Durham in Chicago. He had a little mission in Chicago, and uh, he had been praying and asking God to... Uh, to, you know, to help them out and to touch their lives and so forth. Durham heard about Azusa Street, so he made a trip out to California. And he got to California out there and got to pray and receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost himself and was filled with the Holy Ghost. This was in 1907. Remember, this, this Azusa Street only lasted three years, from 06 to, to 09. And uh, so he, he, got, he, he got baptism of the Holy Ghost, got all fired up. He went back to Chicago, got in his mission, and he began to preach the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And you see, when you know that it happens, and you know it's real, I don't care what anybody else says, 
And every time anybody would start with it, it was like they received persecution. It happened with Parham. It happened with, uh, with uh, Seymour. It happened with Durham. It happened with Urit. Whenever they would say, okay, we're going to launch out here, and we're going to take this over here, and we're going to start preaching it here, they would always receive persecution. And a lot of it was Christians. They, the Christians just say, oh, no, you can't get the Holy Ghost. Oh, no, you're not supposed to speak in other tongues. Oh, no, that doesn't happen today. Until somebody did. Until somebody's brother got it or somebody's mother got it or somebody's sister got it. You know what I'm saying? And then the sisters say, oh, no, no, you know me. We grew up together, brother, you know, brother and sister. You know, we grew up together. This thing is real, you know. And they say, well, maybe it is. And so they begin to come around in this fashion. And so people begin to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost and speaking in other tongues. And it just began to happen. And there was no, there was no denomination barriers there. In other words, I don't care what denomination they were. If they just believed God and came there and prayed, and people began to just pray and pray and pray, and a revival broke out in America. When Durham went back to Chicago, he began to have that. And first of all, he had all kinds of persecution came his way. I mean, people would come there, and they would throw tomatoes. They'd throw rotten eggs, you know, they would, and everything. At one point, they said that he got up on a little, a little soapbox, and he was preaching to the people. And some gruffins, some teenage boys came around, and they'd get there and roll his pants legs up his, up his leg, you know, just roll his pants legs up, trying to get him distracted. And he'd keep on preaching. They'd roll, they rolled his pants legs up over his knees. He just kept on preaching. Never let it bother him. He went right on. And there was a gang of those guys. And then they would go follow him to the house, and they would pound on the door, throw rocks at the house. And, you know, sometimes they'd peep in the window trying to torment him. I think this is, this is Durham and his wife. You know, eventually every one of them got saved. They all got filled with the Holy Ghost, the whole gang. They call them the Owl, O-W-L, the Owl Gang, you know, teenagers. I'm just telling you that God began to work and God began to move. Praise the Lord. And they had no place to go. They'd go out on the street and start preaching on the streets because God, praise the Lord, would touch their hearts. I'm feeling this in the Holy Ghost right now. I'm telling you folks, in our day and age, God is wanting to move in a mighty way even in our generation. He's wanting to move, praise the Lord, today. He is wanting to fill people's lives with His Spirit. There's much more than just us going to church. And a lot of times people will say this. You say, you can receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. They'll say, do I have to? It's almost like it's a dose of medicine or something. Do I have to? You know, this is what Peter said. He said, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For this promise is unto you and to your children and to them that are far off. You see, it's a promise that's given. And somebody said, do I have to receive the Holy Ghost? In other words, what they're really saying is, I'd rather not, you know. And, you know, somebody said, well, it makes you act funny. Not necessarily. You know, let me just say this. If you don't want it to affect you any kind of way, it will. <laughs> but, it, but if you want it to just make you jump all over the place, it probably won't. Because <laughs> God does everything his own way. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. The Spirit of God will get, begin to move upon our bodies and upon our lives. Folks. 
There's nothing that can deal with sin out there like the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It's the Holy Ghost that can cleanse this old temple. And I'll go a little bit further here. The Bible says that we have to be holy, for He is holy. And it also tells us that whenever Jesus comes back, that they that have His Spirit, praise the Lord, like His Spirit, will go in the rapture. Amen. We have to have the Holy Spirit in us to be holy. Blessed and holy are they that have part in the first resurrection. If you want to be in the first resurrection, which is the rapture, amen, blessed and holy are they that have part in the resurrection. What do you think makes you holy? You can't make yourself holy. You can be a righteous person. You can be righteous. You can do the best thing that you know and try to do right in all things. But to be holy, you have to have His Spirit, and His Spirit is holy. Praise the Lord. And it still won't make us perfect. We'll, we'll never be made perfect until Jesus comes back, and then we're given a perfect body like His glorified body. And we'll have a glorified body like His. Amen. We'll never be perfect until then. But the Lord will give His, give his Spirit inside of us, and it will help us. And even after you're saved, from time to time, you know, you may just say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing. You know, you drop the watermelon. You know, and then you say, and the Bible said, if any man sin, let him ask God to forgive this. And you go on with your life. You just go on with the Lord, you know. And you say, God, I'm sorry and everything. And you, that's what repentance is all about. We never do away with repentance, even after we're saved. But I'm just telling you here today, and I believe with all of my heart. I've been reading about this. And I've read it before, and I know it by heart, I guess. But I started brushing up on it again to make sure I had it all right. And everything, I've been reading about it here in the last day or so, and everything. And I said, God, and I've been touched by it. I've said, God, we need revival today. There's never been a time that we need a move of God like we need it, need it now, folks. They, they felt like they really needed it back then. All kinds of things were happening. You know what happened in 1906 when Azusa Street started? You know what also happened in San Francisco? They had that big earthquake. That big earthquake in San Francisco, and it was a devastating earthquake, almost destroyed the city, killed many people there and everything. Things were happening. The people said, we need God. And I'm going to tell you why we need God today. There are things that are beginning to happen in America that I'm concerned about. I'm worried about. I'm, I'm only worried about it because I love America. But I'm just saying you did, we can't just become relaxed in our, uh, our way of life and just say, well, everything's okay. But we've got to say, Lord, we need your presence and we need your spirit and we need your wonderful baptism of the Holy Ghost. And this guy, Durham, he went to Chicago. He started that missions. And next thing you know, people were coming from New York. And some of them going to Azusa, some going to Chicago. Came from Indianapolis. G.T. Haywood. G.T. Haywood. Praise the Lord. That great preacher, that black preacher from Indianapolis built. Uh, he was the head of the PAW, Pentecost Symbols of the World. I think some of our people here have been, been in that organization before. Great organization, sister organization to the United Pentecostal Church. And uh, everything. G.T. Haywood uh, went out there and received the baptism of the Holy Ghost and came back to Indianapolis and uh, built a church. I've been to his church, not when he was living, but after that. And I met the guy that followed his place named Tobit, uh, Bishop Tobit. And I did meet him when I was a young man. He was an older guy and so forth. But I'm just telling you, they built a fabulous church, thousand congregation, uh, there in Indianapolis. And uh, I'm just trying to tell you here today that God is still wanting to do a work today. He's wanting to do it, but folks, we've got to pray. We've got to seek the face of the Lord. 
We've got to say, God, pour out your spirit. Praise the Lord. You know, we need to come to that place. where, And in every one of these cases, it required humility. The reason God used William Seymour so much was because, and everybody said it. I wasn't there. I don't know. I didn't see it. But everybody that you read about sees it. And there's several, there's numbers of books been written about it. They said that Seymour was a very humble person. That was how they described him, very humble. One eye, quiet, you know, but God, and but he prayed and he prayed and prayed and God blessed and blessed. And he knew it was from God and he knew it wasn't from him. And it wasn't his, you know, his ingenious or his, his charisma or whatever you want to call it. There's been men that God has raised up and used and they get all lifted up in themselves. The next thing you know, they've lost the power of God and they've gone off in left field on some wild blue yonder stuff and something. We have to remember that God is the author of this and no man introduced the Pentecostal movement. No man can claim it. We can name names here and there and so forth. But it was God who sent his spirit. God who sent his presence. And it was God in the very beginning. And it was God even, and it will be God today. Hallelujah. And if we will begin to pray and seek the face of God and call upon the name of the Lord and say, Lord, we want a mighty outpouring of the Spirit of God. Who knows what God will do? Who knows what God will do? The church needs the strength of the presence and the power of the Holy Ghost in these last days. We believe it. We know it's in the Word of God. But sometimes we can just sort of let it sit on the shelf and never really seek God for it and just, just say, well, if God wants to give it, he can. But when we begin to seek the face of God, I believe there are people that God wants to heal. I do. I believe there's people in this congregation God wants to heal. Praise the Lord. I believe there's people that just need a touch from God. There's people that need a touch on their marriage. There's people that need a touch in their families. They need, some people need their children to be brought back to the Lord. You never know how God's going to do things. But I'm just saying here, more than ever before, we need God's Spirit. We need His presence, folks. And this is the day and hour that I think that we should seek Him with all of our heart and let God do what He wants to do, and He will do it. He will do it. But He has chosen to involve us. He has chosen. He can do anything he wants to without us, but he's chosen not to. He's chosen to involve us. And so he's made us to be a part of this soul-winning thing. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. You know, I know God could have just reached over and saved people all over the world. He didn't. He said, go ye into all the world. Cornelius, Cornelius, the angel appeared to him. The angel could have said, Cornelius, repent and be baptized in Jesus' name, and you'll receive the Holy Ghost. Get your family all together. He didn't say that. He said, send up to Joppa. There's a man up there by the name of Peter. He'll tell you what to do. He'll come. Because he involves man. He involves us. He involves all of us, that we may be a witness, that we may testify, that we may pray, we may seek his face and desire it with all of our heart. And God will pour his spirit out. And, folks, I want to see it happen. I know God wants to do it. I'd just love to see all of us in this church really begin to seek the face of God and let God begin to pour out his spirit mightily. Who knows what God will do? And if it's of God, it's always beautiful and wonderful and glorious. Hallelujah. Will you stand with me? Our time is gone. Let's just pray and ask God to bless us here this morning. Jesus, we love you. Just worship the Lord with us. We thank you, Lord. You're so good. You're such a wonderful God to us. Thank you for your people, Lord. Thank you for people who love you. 
and love your word and love the wonderful name of Jesus. God, we ask you to bless, Lord, our morning service. Touch our lives and hearts. Help us to reach out to you, Lord, with all of our heart, knowing that you'll respond to our pursuit of you. We praise you and glorify you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.